Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Would you grab a Bible and open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians? This morning we're going to be in chapter 2. And our sermon text is chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. It's our joy as God's people to be able to open up God's Word and read it. Not only read it, but received it as the preached Word of God. And I hope you've come this morning expecting, or in other words, in faith, because we ought to. This is God's Word, and He works in and through the words. So let's read these words with faith, trusting that God's going to use them for our good. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of our God. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come this morning in faith. This is your word, the very word of God, and it is our aim, our desire to receive it. And so we ask for grace this morning that you would give us eager hearts to take hold of Jesus. Father, I pray for everyone here that they would have a heart that longs to grab hold of Jesus. And in fact, this morning, I pray that you would give them faith to receive Christ in the word of the gospel. Father, you are mighty and you are powerful. You are a God who does great works of salvation. We've seen them throughout the history of mankind. And we know you are at work here and now as your word is explained and taught. And so we pray, come among us and work. We pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So we're studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been in it for a few weeks now. And so we've covered chapter 1 and and most of chapter 2. We're we're nearing the end of chapter 2 in this text. In these first two chapters in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've learned some very important things about the Thessalonian church. We have learned that these people were loved, chosen, 
and called by God, meaning that God in his sovereign grace determined these people for fellowship with him, determining to save them from their sins and and draw them near to himself. And when God's grace met the Thessalonians, they were converted. God shook them powerfully with the result that they, they turned to God from the idols to serve the living and true God. And with the other result that they, they turned their eyes to Jesus, looking to Jesus alone, waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven to, to save them and deliver them from the wrath to come. And we have seen that this dramatic conversion has brought about a harvest of spiritual fruits. Their lives are filled with, with faith and hope and love. And as we think about these descriptions that we've found in chapter one and chapter two, they are important for us, not as, as mere historical data, but because in and through these descriptions, we learn what a, a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is loved, chosen, and called by God. A Christian is someone who's turned back to God from all the vanities and delusions of sin. A Christian is someone in whom the Spirit of God works and resides producing spiritual fruit, faith, hope, and love. And here's something marvelous to think about. If you are in Jesus this morning, if you belong to Jesus today, all of those descriptions are true of you. You are loved, chosen, and called by God. God in his sovereign grace has determined you for fellowship with him, and he has rescued you by his sovereign grace from the life of sin. Even more, God has shaken you free from the the vanities and delusions of sin. He has brought about a a, a thorough conversion in your life that you would turn to him and, and serve him and worship him and wait for Jesus and Jesus alone. And even more, God has given you his spirit. And the spirit is at work in you producing faith, hope, and love. And as we look at our text this morning, chapter 2, verse 13, we find another description of what a Christian is. Paul says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So if we just take that verse in, we can say this, a Christian then is someone who receives the word of God. And as Paul is using the word of God in this passage, he's talking about the word of the gospel. A Christian then is someone who receives the word of God or the the word of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now we need to think about this. At first glance, it might seem that Paul is just piling on another description to an already extensive list of what a Christian is. And I've charted that list out for you, loved, called, chosen, converted, spiritual. And now we must add along with all of those descriptors, someone who receives the word of God. And that's certainly one way we can look at what Paul is doing here in chapter 2, verse 13. Just another addition to an already extensive list of descriptions of what a Christian is. But I think there's something more going on in chapter 2, verse 13, and I think that way for for two reasons. First reason is this. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is returning again to God to give thanks to him. 
Now, if you remember, this is how Paul began his letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And if you remember, this thanksgiving that started in chapter 1, verse 2, extended all the way through chapter 1. Paul is giving thanks again and again and again for what God is doing in the lives of these believers. And then after chapter 1, Paul turned his attention to his ministry, to his work among the Thessalonians. He taught about how he preached and why he preached, how he ministered and why he ministered. But here at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 13, after all of that, after chapter 1 and all of the thanksgiving, after most of chapter 2 and describing his ministry, Paul returns again to explicitly give thanks. It is as if Paul is not content with the thanksgiving that he offered up in chapter 1. He's not ready to give up on that work yet. He knows, he realizes that he needs to say something else. And so as keen readers of the scriptures, we ask, well, what more is there to be said? What more is there to give thanks for? And second, Paul gives thanks for this, their reception of the word of God. And this should strike us as a bit odd. And it should strike us as a bit odd because Paul has already given thanks for this explicitly in chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says this. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Same language is being used. So what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul returns to thanksgiving, and he returns to thanksgiving because there's more that needs to be said, and the more that needs to be said is something that he already said. Paul doubles back here and emphatically gives thanks yet again for how the Thessalonians received the word of God, the word of the gospel. If we just let this sink in, this means something. This means then the reception of the word of God is not just another description of what a Christian is, something to add on to the list. Rather, this description, I think, gathers up and collects together all of what it means to be a Christian. This is the preeminent mark of being a Christian. A Christian is someone who receives the word of God as the very word of God. And there is good reason that Paul stresses this point and sets it out before us again. All of the blessings, all of the good things that Paul has given thanks for in chapter 1 come to the Christian through the word about Jesus Christ, the word of the gospel. Just work it through with me. God's sovereign determination, election, embraces the Christian in the word of God. God's calling comes to the Christian, prompting and irresistibly moving him to faith through the word of God. Conversion, this radical reorientation of life, turning from idols to to serve God, this takes place through the proclamation of the word of God. God shakes people down to the foundations of their lives as God's word is taught and explained in the Spirit's power. And the fruit of the Spirit, faith, hope, and love, these things are produced as the Spirit of God actuates the word of God in the heart and mind of the Christian. And we see something glorious here. All of salvation comes to the sinner through this one channel, the word about Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the announcement that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so here is Paul 
in chapter 2, verse 13. And he is thinking about these dear brothers and sisters in faith. And as he thinks about how they receive the word of the gospel, he cannot help but to return and give thanks and lift up his voice once again for their reception of the word of God. Paul is so happy because these believers have grasped the means of salvation. They have taken hold of the great channel of God's grace in and through this word. They themselves have grabbed hold of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has to lift up his heart in thanksgiving. Now I want to take chapter 2 verse 13 and bring it to bear on us in a practical way. If what we've done so far in the sermon is right, we need to ask some questions so we can ask. If the reception of the word of God, namely the gospel of Jesus, if this is the preeminent mark of being a Christian, well, what then does it mean to receive the word of God? What does it look like? What does it entail? And so from 1 Thessalonians, from this passage and from the book, and then we're going to be reaching outside of this book, I want to give you four descriptions of what it looks like to receive the word of the gospel. So the first thing we can say is this. The word of the gospel is to be received with agreement. It's to be received with agreement. And so the, the technical theological word would be assent, but agree gets the idea across, and it's a word that we, we use all of the time. To receive the word of the gospel, one must agree with the word of the gospel. Simply, you must say yes to the truths that the gospel proclaims. Yes, Jesus died for sinners. Yes, Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth. Yes, Jesus rose again from the dead. Yes, Jesus is Lord of all. But as we study our passage, this agreement that is required for reception of the gospel must extend even further. One must say yes also to the very source of the gospel. And this is key. Though the word of the gospel is preached by men, so we see this in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul brought, brought the gospel to this city, and he, he preached it. His mouth preached the gospel. And that's what even is happening right now this morning. I'm bringing the gospel to you. I'm speaking it to you. So even though men preach the gospel, the gospel is not invented by men, nor is it discovered by men. The gospel isn't some ancient artifact hidden away in some forest, and some explorer finds it, digs it up, and brings it out of the world and says, look at this treasure I found for you. No, Paul tells us this word has come from God, and so in agreement... We say yes to all the truths of the gospel, but we go even further and we say, this is the very word of God. We affirm all of this is from God for us. And this is exactly what the Thessalonians did when they received the words. Paul puts it like this in verse 13. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So if we are to receive the word, we must agree with it. That's the first thing we can say. Second thing we can say is this. The word is to be received with trust. The word is to be received with trust. Now this takes the whole matter of reception a step further. So the gospel is coming to us with information and truth, and this truth and information has to be agreed with. We have to say yes to it. 
But we cannot treat the gospel as some sort of divine information packet coming with specs and details that we just need to read and apprehend and say yes to. The word of the gospel comes with a a call, with a summons, and that summons must be heeded. So in order to receive the word of the gospel, one must do this. One must venture out upon the truths of the gospel. And so very practically, this moves us from saying yes to the truth of the gospel and intensifies our response to the gospel. So after saying yes, we say something like this, my only hope is that Christ died for sinners and was buried in the heart of the earth. My only hope is that Jesus rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father and has been given a name above every other name. That is the hope for my life. I'm banking everything on this word. And as we think about it, this is what the Thessalonians did when they received the word of the gospel. They agreed with it, and then they even went further, and they trusted in it. They ventured all upon Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul's describing their response to the word of the gospel. He details their conversion, turning from idols to serve the living and true God, and then he says this. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These believers turned their eyes and they were waiting for Jesus because they knew that he was their savior. And they were only looking to Christ for salvation. And so if we were to receive the word, we must receive it with trust. We can say a third thing on top of the first two things. This word is to be received with delight. We're to receive this word with delight. And so the word of the gospel cannot be proclaimed faithfully without reference to what it saves us from, namely wrath and destruction. And those realities are dreadful and fearful. And Paul has been faithful to point out to what the gospel saves us from. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 10. What are we going to be saved from? In fact, what are we being saved from in the present moment? Jesus is delivering us from wrath. And no one who has an ounce of sanity can ponder any of that for a moment without shuddering. Shuddering in the thought of being lost forever in the anger of God. But while these realities have to be preached and have to be feared, they are not sufficient in and of themselves to motivate someone to cling to the word of the gospel. Fear must be coupled, better yet, fear must be driven along by a deeper reality in the heart, and that deeper reality has to be joy in Jesus. We can just leave the book of 1 Thessalonians for a moment and go to Jesus himself. Jesus explained this in his own ministry as he was preaching to the crowds. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus tells us this little story. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The story is so simple. Guy working in the way in the field, he finds treasure, he goes off, he sells what he has so he can purchase that field so he can get the treasure. But the key word in all of this is the, the little word joy. When that man found the treasure in the field, what happened? Joy sprung up in his soul. The man found something worthwhile, something worthy to spend and be spent for. And that joy that sprung up in his soul when he saw that treasure carried him along as he sold everything that he had. 
All of his actions were driven by what? Joy. Joy. And this is exactly how the gospel must be received. Fear only gets you so far in the Christian life. It'll shake you free. It'll wake you up. But joy, the spirit-given insight into the supreme worth of Jesus, latches our hearts upon Christ, and we will not let go of him when we see how desirable he truly is. And so in agreement, as we said first, we say yes to the truths of the gospel. And then in trust, we venture out on the gospel saying, this is my hope, my only hope. And with this reality at work in our hearts, we are driven further to say something like this. The Lord Jesus, the one who, who died for my sins, the one who was buried in the heart of the earth, the one who rose again from the dead, the one who was seated at the right hand of the Father, he alone is my joy and my treasure and my hope. He is all I want in this life. He's my treasure. And as we go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is how the Thessalonians received the gospel of Jesus. These brothers and sisters in Jesus were in the midst of heavy persecution. But in the midst of heavy persecution, they did not draw back, they did not shudder. Instead, they pushed forward, and they pushed forward because they were being driven by joy. Paul celebrates this in chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Why? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What was going on in the midst of affliction? Well, they received the word, and underneath that, what was going on? The Spirit was giving them joy, and this wasn't a random emotion the Spirit wasn't just randomly making them happy in the midst of persecution, but we can reason that the Spirit was giving them insight into the preciousness of Jesus, that during their persecution, they could reason with their hearts, I have something better than worldly comfort. I have Jesus, and I can be happy even in this because I have the best. And so the word is to be received with much delight. We can say a fourth thing. The word is to be received with resolute commitment. The word is to be, to be received with resolute commitment. The Thessalonians, when they received the word of the gospel from Paul, they were deeply convinced by it. Paul says this about their reception in chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And this conviction that Paul talks about, we might call a, a deep persuasion, meaning that this wasn't a passing interest. As we think about our lives, this happens all of the time. We get interested in something. Perhaps it's a sport or a hobby or an exercise routine, something we get interested in, and so we pursue it for a time. But what happens after a while? That thing that we're pursuing, whatever it is, loses its, its glitter and glamour, and then it kind of slowly drifts off. It just becomes one of the things we're doing in our lives. And then after that, we just kind of set it behind us, and maybe we do it once in a while, and then pretty soon we, we never do it again. We get interested in something, but after a while, that the cost of it, the, the work that you have to put into it, just it's not worth it anymore for you. 
But here we see that the Thessalonians were steadfast in their conviction. Irregardless of what was going on around them, they were waiting for Jesus. They were clinging to this word of the gospel. And Jesus himself stressed the necessity of resolute commitment throughout his ministry. As you listen to Jesus, as he was traveling about and preaching the word of the gospel to those in Israel, he said things like this. Luke chapter 12, verse 24. Strive or make every effort to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able On another occasion, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And and those who find it are few. As we take in Jesus, we we see that he is demanding a, a specific sort of commitment. There's nothing nonchalant or relaxed or easygoing about Jesus' words here. He's not casual with us. He commands us to strive and struggle and fight, exerting every ounce of energy we have, letting nothing keeping us from, from the word of the gospel, letting nothing turning us aside from the word of the gospel. And he forewarns us that this way is hard and full of difficulties. And so he tells us that steady, determined perseverance is necessary for this. He's telling us, budget, budget for trouble and difficulties that come your way. And so to receive the word, we say, I agree with it, yes, yes, yes. We go further and we say, I trust, my only hope is Jesus. And after that, there's something going on in our hearts and we say, my only treasure is Christ and Christ alone. And when those three things are happening in our souls, we'd say this then too. I will cling to this word about Jesus all my days, whether pleasant or trouble-filled. This word is for me, and I will not let go of it. And here's the clincher. This is something that cannot just be said with your mouth, but it has to be evidenced with your life over the long haul. To receive the word of Jesus is to cling body and soul to Jesus who died, was buried, rose again from the dead. So here we see what it means to receive the word of God. And I ask you this morning, have you received the word of the gospel? Have you you, you said yes to the truths of the gospel? Have you hoped in Jesus? Have you tasted the sweetness of Christ in the preaching of the gospel? And because of that, have you said, I'm going to cling to Jesus, and I am clinging to Jesus? Have you received the word of the gospel? We can see from Paul just how important this is. He's lifting this up before us, setting it before us so that we might have to deal with it, not just once in chapter 1, but again here in chapter 2, verse 13. Now, we have more to work through. That's just verse 13. And as we consider receiving the word of the gospel, we have to understand that this doesn't take place in a vacuum. There is resistance. In fact, there is always resistance to receiving the word of God. And that's what I want to focus our attention on now. And resistance comes from every direction. As we think about it, our hearts resist the word of the gospel. They struggle and they push back and they often stymie our our best of intentions. We have these spiritual aspirations, 
but often our flesh is fighting against us in them. And then there's the weakness of our constitutions. We're a people who go tired and and weary, and we do it so quickly. And not only is there resistance from within, but there's resistance from outside of us. The world is always full of hostility against the gospel of Jesus, and this shouldn't be overlooked. That the world is always exerting this pressure on us, the snickers and sneers and disapproval and disgust, the threat of rejection, all that threatens to drive us back. We're always swimming upstream in the current of the world, and we get tired swimming upstream. And there are even worse foes to consider. There's Satan and the kingdom of darkness to consider. Satan himself strives against the church so that they would not receive the word of the gospel. He's tempting us with discouragement and all sorts of lures so that we would turn back from the word of God. And as we consider this letter, the Thessalonians knew about this resistance well. They encountered severe pushback. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul gives us a sense of what these believers were experiencing. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So in these verses, Paul points his finger at the church in Judea. And he tells us about what's going on in the church of Judea. There's, there's Jews in Judea, and they're opposing these Christians. And these Jews in Judea are fierce opponents of the gospel. They've rejected the gospel, but their hatred didn't stop there. They were filled with violence, persecuting the church, slandering them, even filled with murderous rage. And one just has to go and read the book of Acts to see what was taking place to the, to the church in Judea. And Paul tells us, in these three verses, that this same sort of thing is now happening to the believers who are in Thessalonica. They're receiving the same sort of treatment that the church in Judea was receiving. They're surrounded by opponents of the gospel who hate the gospel, who not only hate the gospel, but hate these Christians and are willing to go to great lengths to oppose and resist these Christians. So here are these dear believers And they are caught up in all of this. And so what does Paul have to say to these Christians to encourage them? Well, Paul gives two consolations in our text. And I want to point them out to you that they might be a consolation for you as you meet resistance. The first consolation is a surprising one, but it is a consolation. And that consolation is the wrath of God. So Paul says this in verse 16 about these Jews resisting the word of the gospel. He says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul here is picking up some language from the Old Testament that you might find in the book of Genesis and and language that the, the prophets would use. And essentially he is saying this, God's forbearance with these Jewish oppressors has expired. Paul is saying these people who are persecuting the church are ripe for judgment. And the evidence that Paul submits is damning. What do these people have done? Well, they have killed the prophets. And not only have they killed the prophets, but they killed Jesus himself. And on top of that, they've opposed the gospel message and its messengers. They're hindering salvation from going out to the Gentiles, laboring with all their power that it might happen. 
And so what Paul says next in response to this is explosive. He says this, but wrath has come upon them at last. Wrath, God's end time judgment stored up for the wicked, which we know will come at the end of time, has broken out in the present time against these oppressors of God. Somehow, someway, the wrath of God has exploded into the present time against these oppressors of the gospel. And what this means is really hard to understand. Paul doesn't tell us how the wrath of God was specifically made manifest against these people. Was it a hardening of heart like what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1? Was it some sort of catastrophe or calamity? Is somehow Paul talking about the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70? We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But the details shouldn't bog us down. The point is clear. Even if we can't understand all of what Paul is talking about, we can understand this. God will oppose himself, those who resist the word of the gospel. And this is what Paul was putting in the ears of the Thessalonians. He's saying something like this. Don't you see it, dear Christians? God has judged his enemies. It has happened. And you, dear Christians, take heart for God in his own timing and in his own way, maybe now, maybe later, but surely at some point, will deal with those who resist the word of the gospel. And as we think about it, this is the news that meets us today. It consoles our weary and tired hearts. Believer, know this, bank on this. All who resist the word of the gospel, whether that be Satan himself, whether that be governments or people groups or academics or friends or neighbors or anyone else you can name, if they oppose the word of the gospel, God himself will oppose them. And he will in his own way, in his own timing, deal with them as he sees fit. So that's the first consolation. Paul sets that before the church. And there's a second consolation, and the second consolation is the word of the gospel itself. And so we've been stressing in the sermon, receiving God's word. And we've said we must agree with it, and then trust it, and then delight in it, and then commit ourselves to it. And those are all non-negotiable. But we can't walk away from all of this with the wrong impression. The whole matter of receiving God's word isn't a matter of holding on to the steering wheel with a death grip, white knuckles and all, like you're driving through a nasty snowstorm and you're just doing everything you can do just to keep your car on the road. No, when you receive the word of the gospel, it's just not you taking hold of the word, but in reality, and this is so glorious, it is the word of the gospel taking hold of you. Verse 13 again, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, key in on this, which is at work in you, believers. The word of God is not some inanimate thing. It's not some piece of information that we're desperately trying to cram in our head, hoping that somehow, someway, it'll change our hearts left to our own resources in this, to keep delighting in Jesus, to keep trusting in Jesus, to to cling to Jesus. 
No, when we receive the word of God, the word of God sets to work in our hearts. God himself, in fact, takes action in and through the received word. God reacts and reaches into the interior of our beings and works out his purposes of grace. With the word, he begins to deepen our trust in Jesus. With the word, he begins to further incline our hearts to Christ by showing us the the riches of Jesus again and again with greater detail and greater depth. With the word, he secures us grabbing hold of us so that we wouldn't wander away from him, that he might keep us. So Paul looks at these, these Christians in Thessalonica. He encourages them. He consoles them with this great truth. The word is at work in you. It's at work in you. And this is our hope today. You've heard the gospel today. I've repeated it to you time and time and time again. And this is the gospel that you have received. And hear this, this is the gospel that is at work in you. It's at work in you. And even in this very moment, just consider this, God himself is reaching into the interior of your heart through this word as you receive it, and he is changing you with his mighty power. He's giving you faith in this moment. He's giving you trust that you keep saying, Christ is my only hope. He's revealing Jesus in greater detail of overcoming those stubborn places in our hearts that we would delight in Jesus more. Even more, he's creating a perseverance in us that we would continue to cling to Jesus. And that is our hope, dear believers. The word is at work in you. Let's pray.